Ladies and gentlemen, it's with great pleasure that I welcome you to the Middle East Center on the Monday of sixth week for what is our first collaboration of the academic year with the Maison Française d'Oxford. And I would like to welcome in particular the director of the Maison Française, Anne Simonin, uh, with our thanks for giving us the opportunity for sharing in the outstanding research being done on the civil conflict in Syria at the uh, Panthéon-Sorbonne University. We will hear tonight from Professor Gilles Doronsoro. Gilles is Professor of Political Science at the Panthéon-Sorbonne, and he's the principal investigator of an ERC-funded civil wars program and a senior uh, fellow at the Institut Universitaire de France. He's the author of several works on Afghanistan and Turkey, including Afghanistan, the Unending Revolution, published by Columbia in 2005. Uh, Professor Doronsoro will be joined by uh, Adam Bajko, who's a junior research fellow in the same ERC-funded program in pa uh, University of uh, Pontien-Sorbonne in Paris. He's uh, doing a PhD in political science at the AS, the, um, the École des Autitudes en Sciences Sociales in Paris. He was previously a fellow at Yale University and at the Institute for Human Science in Vienna. And he's carrying out research on insurgent groups and how they implement court systems based on field work in Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Syria, and Iraq. And our third speaker will be Arthur Kinney, who is also a doctoral candidate in political science and a junior research fellow in the same ERC-funded program in Panthéon-Sorbonne. He was previously a fellow at the Institut Français de Proche-Orient, IFPO. His doctoral thesis focuses on sectarian conflicts in northern Iraq, where he's conducted extensive field work since 2009. It is a particular pleasure for us to be able to hear from the French School of Syrian Research. I know that there's a great deal of interest in Syria in this country, in the United States, but I think that for reasons of historic ties, the French connection to Syria has always been very strong, and I know that I personally have always valued hearing the work that's been done in the field by my French colleagues. So, gentlemen, it is such a pleasure and such an honor to welcome you to the Middle East Center we look forward to hearing from you. Professor Doronsoro, if you'd like to get us started, please. Uh, thank you for this kind introduction. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here tonight. I would like to thank the Middle East Center and the uh, Maison Française d'Oxford. Uh, Maison Française d'Oxford is only three words I can say with the right accent. <laughs> Enjoy. Uh, and uh, I would like to say first that we are free to speak because we, we did the fieldwork together, we wrote a book together, but uh, what's, uh, what's happening now in Syria, the book is going to be published in May in French and it's under review in, uh, in English. So that's why we, we are packed, three of us together. Uh, I'm going to first to, uh, to, uh, to mention what interested us in the Syrian war. Uh, there is something of a puzzle, or maybe a moral scandal also, uh, when you consider that uh, for five years ago now, uh, you, you could see hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating peacefully for months in Syria, uh, with a non-sectarian slogan, inclusive uh, protest, and it was in the spirit of uh, what we, we, we call the Arab Spring. And today we are in a situation that is probably one of the most violent in the Middle East. And as you know, Middle East is especially violent place. 
And we like to, to, to understand how it's possible today that uh, half of the Syrian population is uh, IDP or refugee, that uh, according to the last uh, UN report, the Syrian regime is exterminating its uh, political prisoner, how uh, the Islamic State is... Uh, uh, is uh, is actually killing all the Shia in a very genocidal uh, uh, move, killing all Shia he can find uh, in his territory. How the the insurgency, the rest of the insurgency, we, which was relatively moderate at the beginning, is now uh, basically uh, much more radical. And uh, you have here. Uh, uh, violence which was imposed on, on Syria, which is absolutely uh, terrific and the basis of, of what we thought. Uh, most of our field work was done in 2012 and 13, mostly in Syria and Turkey. Uh, Syria became too dangerous, so we, we shifted to, to Turkey and also Iraq in the Kurdish area, which are much safer. So uh, having said that, uh, we would like to uh, to start with uh, two or three remarks. The first is that the first remark is that, contrary to what is often said, uh, we don't consider that uh, at the beginning of the Syrian revolution or the Syrian civil war, uh, uh, Islamist or radical Islam or jihadist were uh, in a significant number in the protest against Bashar al-Assad. And it's going against the idea that you see more and more in the news that uh, from the beginning it was all doomed and uh, there was no choice but between uh, Bashar al-Assad and, uh, and uh, al-Qaeda or uh, ISIS in the, this new version. The second thing is that, uh, as we have seen it, uh, radicalization and fragmentation of the insurgency is coming mostly from the outside, from non-Syrian pre-existing radical movements like uh, Kurdish movement or uh, Al-Qaeda and uh, ISIS. And uh, it's extremely important because it's not an endogenous dynamic. It's not coming from Syria itself. It's coming from uh, different factors where actually the outside is more important than the inside. And the third thing is that uh, at different point in the Syrian crisis since 2011, uh, U.S. American foreign policy could have made a real difference. Could have made a real difference in 2013, could have made a difference in 14, or even today could have made a difference. And what we have seen is that for different reasons, the U.S. policy, the Obama administration, how to put it, had uh, inadvertently destroyed Syria because they were not interested enough because they had this very contradictory policy. We'll speak about it later. So to, uh, to explain more in detail all this point, we'll first describe the initial phase of the protest from 2011-2013. It's a violent, it's non-violent protest. Then it's an insurgency, but... Uh, it's a really moderate insurgency. Then we'll go, that will be with Arthur. Then we'll go with uh, Adam in the second phase, which is more about the fragmentation and radicalization of the insurgency. And I will very quickly conclude about the international play uh, around, uh, around Syria. Arthur? Well, first, 
to analyze the trajectory of the Syrian revolution, it is very important to identify two initial moments. First, the peaceful phase of dissidents, which appears in occur in uh, 2011, and then, second, the phase of inclusive insurgency between 2000, 2012 and 2013. Yeah. An analyze, analyze of these two moments will allow us to address a range of issues. First, how the mobilization can occur inside of, in a repressive context, we'll uh, describe this context. Second, the formation of institutions inside the uh, territory held by the insur insurgents. Firstly, our interviews in Syria reveal us that uh, the initial moments of the mobilization were primarily the result of some personal engagement and uh, engagement relati relatively independent of the social position and of the sectarian affiliations. I mean about religious affiliation or ethnical affiliations. Informal discussions about the revolutions occurred in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Libya, were the direct cause of the mobilization in Syria. These discussions led to a transformation in the perception of the political opportunities for Syrians. For example, the terms Arab Springs jointly constructed by the media, but also by the protesters, encourage the, the identification of the Assad regime with the other regime of the Middle East. And of course, when Ben Ali, uh, Mubarak fell, and then after Gaddafi, uh, then for the Syrian, the, things the impossible become possible. Activists then start to define a shared moral, moral grammar of the conflict. They were um, claiming to refer to universal values and try to connect those values with the other context of uh, Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, Yemen, etc. I will quote quickly uh, an activist that we interviewed in, in, in Aleppo. He told us, the revolution in Tunisia, Egypt, and Yemen unfolded like a dream for us. When Tripoli fell, I say to myself, it's possible. That we also had a change against Bashar in Syria. The impossible become possible. Another one told us, we were protesting for our right as a Syrian. At first, I joined the demonstrators in solidarity with the rest of the population against the regime that had confiscated powers. Then informal sites of deliberations were creating and were developed as a strategic point for the uh, mobilization. For example, Tanzikiyat, informal networks, but also mosques, became not only the place for exchanging information, but also place for assessing risk and building a collective project in a context where people cannot gather in them, gathering themselves because of the repressions. Then those decentralized networks explain how the protesters uh, find a way to survive months after months against the repressions. Informal groups, step by step, learn how to transform themselves uh, to become, to construct a more uh, revolutionary, revolutionary network uh, with the capacity uh, to, um, to struggle during the long term against the regime. 
the agenda of the mobilization, of course, was uh, national. It was national mobilization from the beginning. Inclusive and humanist, beyond any local or communitarian solidarity. Protesters were refusing to accept socio-economical concessions from the regime, as well as the political and moral slogan on symbols, on their symbols, suggest that uh, they were engage, engaging themselves inside a struggle for recognition. It was a political struggle, not a struggle for economical goals or social demands. The reference to Arab Spring assumes a peaceful demonstrations on stunts that will continue for months despite the violence of the repressions. In the same time, of course, as you know, the regime refused the old kind of dialogue. The regime attempted to divide the protest movement with some economical concession, but it was not working. Then he militarized the repressions so as to radicalize the opposition. However, the magnitude of the protest was beyond of the control of the security apparatus, and the army was not able to retake control on the territory. Then the regime find a way of make a, a very critical strategy to radicalize the crisis, to, uh, to, to, to push the, 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 the peaceful demonstrations demonstration, to uh, on violent uh, insurrections. In front, facing the increasing the increasing of the uh, violence of the repressions, insurgents find a way, step by step, to create armed groups. In the summer 2012, um, hundreds of armed groups appeared everywhere in the Syrian uh, in, the, in Syrian territory, and we can say that during the summer 2012, the state lost the monopoly on violence. But the lack of resources made, make it very difficult for the insurgent groups to unite themselves and to face against the regime in the long term. Initially, uh, those insurgent groups were without hierarchical structures, and even after four years of fighting, even until now, they are not able to create a national, uh, national uh, uh, um, army to strike against the regime because of the lack of the resources, of, of course, because of the repressions. But we insist that from, from the beginning, there, it was no phase of Obezian anarchy in Syria. From the first months of the uprising, we can observe a peaceful coexistence between the different armed groups uh, inside the insurrections. Of course, then we'll explain how some groups radicalize themselves, how it comes from outside. But when I, we spoke about the Syrian insurgents, uh, they were not fighting against each other. In this initial phase of insurgents, so until 2013, the civil war had two, two unexpected features. So first, the lack of territorialization of the armed groups armed groups are not very interesting to control one specific area. Second, a very fast transformation of the civil institutions. Indeed, in areas that fell to the insurgents, 
there began the process of institutionalizations. New institutions emerged with the backing, uh, with the aim to back, to back the military units and to, uh, to help the population, the civil populations. Those institutions grew as a result of the social demands relayed via the informal channel and demonstrations. Those institutions were originally uh, developing themselves from the activist networks form, formed during the first initial peaceful demons, uh, protest, peaceful protest. Indeed, uh, those, these uh, informal networks became more and more institutionalized with the organization of elections in different cities and uh, the beginning, the construction of uh, bureaucracy. Uh, and all of these institutions, of course, are the continuation of the, the first initial moment of the revolution, the peaceful uh, start, beginning of the, mo the mobilization. However, civil institutions were, in the end, uh, damaged by the lack of resources, like uh, military groups, but um, damaged also by the repression of the regime and the bombing attacked mostly, but mainly also by the coming from outside of the political military groups who were coming to Syria to compete directly those uh, civilian institutions. And I will give the speak to Adam to describe how uh, political military groups were coming from outside to compete insurrection in Syria. Thank you, Arthur. Um, so Arthur has described what was the result of the bulk of our interviews. Uh, I will now speak about uh, what was one of the most fascinating uh, results we had by doing, but between our first field work in December, January 2012-13 and our second in August 2013. Between our first field and our second field, what we observed was both a radicalization of the insurgency and a fragmentation, which in our follow-up in 2014 and 2015 uh, would end up to the map you see above us. Uh, the importation of radical movements came through a double dynamic, one of regime instrumentalization of outside groups and one of opportunism, of strategic opportunism of such groups. Um, I want to put together in, in, in this presentation, despite the differences, uh, the strategy that the PKK and its Syrian branch, the PYD, had in Syria and the, the, the one, the Syrian political military groups um, the most radical of it, the Islamic State, had between 2011 and 2014. The PKK, or let's, let's speak during the presentation of the PYD, its Syrian branch, became a, a, a way for the regime to outsource its repression. Uh, from the start, from March, April 2011, the regime put a lot of resources on trying to disconnect the Kurdish mobilization from the rest of the Syrian mobilization. In April 2011, uh, Bidun, the Kurdish uh, Syrian citizens that had been deprived of their nationality were given back passports. Socioeconomic concession, special targeting the Kurds were done, and especially military restraint at the very same time as the, 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 the Navy was bombing Latakia, as the, the, the Air Force was bombing Homs and Hama, well, at the same time, in Kurdish era, the, the army was restraining itself. But from summer 2011, after a set of negotiation between the regime and the PKK cadres in Kandil, uh, the PKK came back to Afrin, Kobane, and the, the Kamishli area. 
uh, at those at that time, you have to remember that the the, the, the Koban area and the Kamishlia were were separated uh, in terms of PKK control. In the summer of 2011, the government peacefully withdrew to uh, the police to the station and the army to the barracks, giving giving control of their territory to the PKK that had lost any presence in Syria after the 1999 agreement between Syria and Turkey, in which Syria was agreeing not to let PKK recruit or have any presence in Syria. In exchange of this renewed presence and even control over the streets, uh, the PKK was tasked with repressing the, with, with repressing the Kurdish part of the demonstration. And they did what the government, was the regime was unable to do, targeted repression using the fact that they knew who were the most important activists, um, having some ability to negotiate. On the other hand, the rest of the Kurdish movements, and especially the demonstrators, tried to go through the, the, the parties uh, that existed, and that's one of the difference between the Kurds and the rest of Syria here, the, the very strong politicization of, 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 of the Kurdish people. Well, the, the existing parties tried to build a coalition, uh, the Kurdish National Council of Syria, and find a deal with the Syrian National Council. The failure of it and the presence of the, and, and the strong implant, implementation of the PKK led to the failure of um, the peaceful mobilization in Kurdish areas. By July 2012, when free Syrian army units mostly uh, uh, with uh, uh, several brigades like Al-Tawhid or Sukkot al-Sham to cover the north of Syria, uh, the army and the police from the regime withdrew from the three enclaves, from two of the three enclaves, sorry, from Afrin and Kobane, and let peacefully uh, the, the PYD authorities take over. We had uh, repeated testimonies from PYD policemen, uh, Asaish, or from people living in the area at that time. One of the policemen was even saying that the keys were still on the police vehicles uh, when the police left uh, Kobani. On the other hand, the regime played a bid for polarization against the rest uh, of, uh, of the population, trying to divide the Sunni Arab community from the rest of the population and, playing, and targeting specifically the polarization of this popula- on, on this population it was visible in the indiscriminate bombing over Sunni areas in Latakia, for example, when the Navy bombs, it only bombs the southern districts which are Sunni populated. But it was even more visible in their dealing with uh, the most radical Islamists in 2011. Uh, the description of peaceful demonstration as Al-Qaeda and the description of its military repression and peaceful demonstration as a war on terror were our illustration of it. But the most important one is the move of the regime into the spring 2011 in, uh, as an answer to the demand of the negotiator to free prisoners of Sednaya that had been taken during the demonstration, freeing on the country hundreds of um, Islamist militants that they had arrested in 2009, uh, militants that had been very active in the war against the American army and that had been arrested when Syria was trying to find a compromise with the U.S. In the spring 2011, a few names that became the most important uh, leaders of the most important radical Islamist political military groups were freed from Sanaya, just just telling you five more important, probably. Abu Isa al-Sheikh, which became the leader of uh, Liwa Sukur al-Sham, Zahran Alush, the head of Jaysh al-Islam, Abdul Rahman Suwais, the head of Liwa al-Haq, Abdul um, Hassan Aboud, the head of Harakat Akhlar al-Sham al-Islamiyeh, and Abu Muhammad al-Jalani, the head of Jabhat al-Nusra. 
those movements that took and hold, uh, those Islamist movements took a strong hold from uh, the spring of 2012, but remained marginal uh, when we arrived in December, January 2012-2013. Most of the fighters of the insurgency were either part of the FSA or of units that accept, though refused formal affiliation with the FSA, accepted to coordinate in the military commands that the FSA was running. But between our two fields, we saw how those movements outflanked, both of them, uh, the insurgency in their respective area. The PYD constructed autonomous territory, promoting a competitive agenda to the one of taking over the, the one of the Syrian mobilization, which was promoting a taking over of the regime, a national agenda. The PYD promoted an ethnic agenda with a transnational uh, perspective. It built its own administration, uh, with its own government structures, uh, the Malagal, the House of People, were meant to run public services, courts were, were put in place, uh, party structures of PYD. But at the same time, we observed when we did fieldwork in, in, in the PYD area, a dual structure. So the PYD office existed, but had altogether in the whole of Kobane seven members, one per day. Um, the head of Asaish was less important than a, a PKK cadre that was uh, coming from Iraq, from Kandil, that he was looking at behind our shoulder during the whole interview until after some time, the PKK cadre behind us revealed itself as uh, being more important. And we had repeated experience of this, uh, of this type, which are classical of, for, for people that have worked on the PKK, well, dual control was, was often the case. It's also something very classical for socialist or Marxist insurgencies. Uh, of the 80s or 70s. But the peak, for, compared to what we were seeing in the rest of Syria, that was exceptional. <clears throat> the PYD entered in, 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 in several coalitions, but used those coalitions not as a way to open up politically, but on the country to undermine the compet the, their competitors. One of them was the Tevdem, which the, Democrats, uh, the movement for, for, for a democrat society, that was a way for the, the PKK, forced by the... the the, 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 the PDK and Erbil to, do, to make an agreement with the rest of the, the Kurdish parties to include them within a structure but in which those parties would not have any executive position. More, more recently, the Syrian Democratic Council started uh, as a double bid, a bid to find some legitimacy to enter within Arab-populated uh, Arab territory and also a bid to be present in int international negotiations such as the NIVA today. But again, no executive position were given to any uh, non-PYD uh, 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 figure of uh, any strong, any important executive position was given to a, a non-PYD uh, member, a non-PKK member, sorry. This transnational agenda led the movement to focus on on, on specific areas that were along the border, which remains uh, up to today, the objective of the PYD. Uh, so you see how uh, the whole area in yellow uh, uh, became a, a PYD RAS. Uh, the, the, the Azaz border control is now where the fightings are happening, but Talabiat was very important. Jarblus has been frequently targeting and the, 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 where most of the fightings between Kurds and uh, uh, insurgent or the Islamic State then happening, Ratsalain, where this, the, the insurgency was attacking the Kurds. Well, the borders was really the stake for the PKK. The Islamist political military groups on their side had a competing agenda over sectarianization. Sectarianization was a, a very explicit strategy, 
which was uh, contra contrasting with the use of Islam as a political language of contest, as we could see in 2011. It existed. It existed as an inclusive language, as a language that was transgressive within Syria, especially within the Assad regime, but which did not prevent, even in the insurgent uh, uh, phase in 2012-2013, a plurality of actors. The Al Tawhid was a complex movement made of people with very different opinions. Some were praying, some were not. Uh, some had, some were shaving, some were not. It was a very complex political and social uh, um, game. On the other hand, groups like Ahlal Sham al Islamiyah had a very explicit strategy of entryism. Uh, trying to recruit cadres, to keep them, to train them, to keep in touch with them when they were taking some autonomy from the movement. Though Ahrar al-Sham al-Islami stayed within a Syrian framework, and the, the most striking and successful example was Jabhat al-Nusra in their pre-division version before it divided with uh, the Islamic State, uh, which had a strategy of competition and of direct uh, taking over by strategic position. And what we observed was uh, the positioning of the movement along border posts to recruit foreigners, uh, a targeting of the control of resources, the gas and the oil in the east of Syria are obvious examples, but even within Aleppo, the, the attempts to take over floor, uh, grain silos. Um, Jalat Musa had... had was focusing its fight with the regime on places that had strategic stakes. It was very present in Latakia. It was the one that organized the Salamiye uh, attack in 2013, which had an explicit sectarian tone against the Ismailis. This sectarian agenda was imposed in a very selective way, which was very interesting for us. For example, the, the cult of saints, which is often something you see among Salafist groups, one of the first targets, something we observe repeatedly in Afghanistan, was you, you had up to the taking over of the Islamic State in 2014 a restraint from Jabhat al-Nusra with Amir explicitly saying that they should not uh, attack the cult of saints because they are popular, or strategic... Uh, uh, uh. A a, a, an explicit strategy. On the other hand, uh, attack on Shia was very present in the propaganda and rem remind us of what happened in Iraq in 2005-2006 when the, the dif differences between the Iraqi branch of Al-Qaeda, the future Islamic State, was clashing with the main branch of Al-Qaeda over should we fight the Americans or should we fight the Shia. The, the Jabhat al-Nusra created its own uh, institution, investing on the least important and least resourced, resourced uh, uh, um, cost, cost expensive institutions, uh, at the same time as doing targeted assassinations, especially on the head of Liwas, on people who would contest them, legitimized by a very extensive use of takfir. After the, the division between Jabhat al-Nusra and the Islamic State, this division was interestingly over how far should one go in taking over the insurgency in a sense, uh, while people who refused to join the Islamic State and stay with Jabhat al-Nusra were mainly Syrians. Most of the foreigners joined the Islamic State in, 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 in March 2013. Uh, while the Islamic State was promoting control of the territory type of strategy, Jabhat al-Nusra was explicitly at that time and... Um, promoting a strategy of revolutionary avant-garde, being the, 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 the one most involved in the fighting. Uh, 
the two movements kept, in a sense, a certain revolution, re, building their own revolution within the revolution. The Islamic State took over the east of Syria in January 2014, while Jabhat al-Nusra kept ambiguous links with the insurgency in Idlib, clashing with uh, the organization of Constance and the Syrian Revolutionary Front, at the same time as they were participating to, call, to a coalition that took Idlib and that today is fighting to prevent the insurgency from falling in Aleppo. Those, those two competing agenda and outflanking of the insurgency on the ethnic side on one hand, on the sectarian side on the other, uh, led to the decline of uh, both the plural group and the secular institution and the one of the coalition, both of them. It undermined in general the, the coalition <laughs> institution, though it did not prevent for a time the unification and the structuration of the insurgency in the, in the south, in Dara and Yarmouk, where you had units, we often forget it, of tens of thousands of fighters, and in the triangle between Idlib, Hama, and Aleppo. But this Islamization from outside requires for, to be understood well to look at the role of foreign actors. Thanks. Uh, our last point will be about the, the foreign intervention in the Syrian civil war. Um, well, we choose to, to start with the uh, U.S. policy uh, towards Syria because it's probably the, the, the most uh, simple way to explain what's going on. And uh, the, probably um, the first thing to, to, to explain is that there is a deep contradiction inside the, the U.S. Uh, and more the Western policy towards Syria. And where is the contradiction? The contradiction is that, on the one hand, after a few months, I would say summer 2011, uh, the U.S. administration uh, put it very clearly that uh, the Syrian government was not a legitimate one, and negating the legitim legitimacy of the Syrian government was also a way uh, to put forward the legitimacy of the new governmental exile, Syrian coalition, whatever, that was put together with the support of the uh, of the Western countries and the Arab state in uh, in uh, in Turkey generally. So this is one policy which is coherent in a way. Where it's becoming less coherent, not to say uh, totally incoherent, is that at the same time uh, there was no real support for the insurgency. So you're pushing the insurgency to very very far, uh, saying that well uh, Bashar al-Assad is no more. Uh, no more the head of a legitimate government. Uh, we are going to see uh, regime change and so on. And at the same time, what do we see on the ground? Uh, few arms. Uh, the training, uh, training in Turkey was miserable. Uh, you remember a few months when uh, CIA trained a team of uh, Syrian fighters went back to Syria. It was a total humiliation. And again and again, not enough resources. Uh, no savoir-faire, no know-how. So for one reason or another, no resources for the Syrian insurgency, no serious resources for the Syrian insurgency. It means that most, uh, the relative uh, importance of the funding from the Arab state was much higher than what it should have been, you know. Uh, and uh, the consequence also is that Moderate, uh, moderate groups uh, in Idlib, for example, they were quite strong at the time, in 12, 13, uh, were actually isolated and uh, were forced to, to dissolve, disappear, they were killed, whatever. 
So that's just the first thing, which is very uh, contradictory. The second thing is the no-fly zone. Uh, there, there, of course, there is no no-fly zone. But uh, no-fly zone would have been really the silver bullet in the Syrian conflict because instead of seeing probably two million people flying to Turkey, uh, would have seen people settle in the north. And uh, when you remember what happened in the in the conflict in Iraq in uh, 1991, that was a key measure to avoid this kind of large-scale. Uh, migration to the next country and all the problem you can you can foresee very easily. Uh, and by the way, we have one million uh, Syrian refugees, but I will talk about it later. So no no-fly zone for no obvious reason at that time. I think it would have been perfectly possible in 12 or 13. The, the third point is that after the use of uh, gas uh, against the uh, Syrian civilian in summer 2013, Actually, we were in, in Turkey at that time. The uh, Obama administration, and Obama itself actually, refused to engage in uh, some kind of bombing. I mean, the, the bombing that was planned originally with the French and, and the Brits uh, were quite limited, but uh, it would have been a way to send a message uh, to uh, both uh, the Syrian government and to uh, its backers, uh, Iran, uh, Iran and, and Russia. Uh, nothing was done with the immediate consequence that uh, we lost most of all credibility in this conflict. Uh, people were very angry uh, with uh, Western countries because actually they were terrified by, the, by these attacks. Uh, really, we saw that. They were saying, what? Nothing is going to happen. You can uh, bomb with... Uh, uh, gas uh, civilian population and the Western countries are not going to do anything about it. And the, the, the last thing, which is not absolutely inconsequential, is that when the insurgency fought against the Islamic State in two, the end of 2013, and actually mostly won the fight against them in the beginning of 2014, uh, what happened? Uh, of course, we, we gave a lot of support uh, to the insurgency because they were fighting our enemies. No, joking. And nothing happened. Uh, absolutely nothing happened. And so six months later, we saw the Islamic State back in Syria. So for all this reason, uh, I think that there is something deeply troubling about uh, the inability of the U.S. policy to do anything coherent in the Syrian conflict. Especially for me, because I've worked on Afghanistan, and uh, I'm seeing more or less the same process of the, this kind of total dissolution of even strategic thinking uh, in, uh, in Washington. So what are the consequences now on a larger scale? The first consequence, I would say, is that Europe is no more interested in the Syrian conflict per se. Uh, Europe is interested in two things, the refugees, and for the refugees you have to deal with Turkey, not with the conflict itself, actually, because Europeans have no the, the means, nor the will, actually, to do anything. The second is terrorism, but for terrorism, mostly, I mean, Germans, at least, want to deal more directly with Damascus, and they, they are not trying, really, to do something on the ground. The, uh, and, uh, by the way, speaking about refugees and Europe, I'm thinking of the Brexit, you know. Uh, if the result of the, 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 the referendum of Brexit is like very, very uh, 49 point something against 51. 
50 point something. What's the role of the Syrian refugees? I mean, I said that uh, Obama destroys Syria, yes, but it's also it could destroy part of European uh, construction, you know. It's not totally unthinkable. The second thing is that, of course, after September 2013, uh, what we have seen is that Russia was empowered. Uh, they saw that they had all the space they wanted to do something in Syria. Actually, there is no direct strategic interest in Syria, in, uh, Syria for Russia. It's a much more complex game. And uh, what we have seen now is a full coherent strategy to destroy the insurgency, to make a deal with the PKK and the PED locally, and then, uh, after that, to oblige Western countries to choose between Damascus and the Islamic State with the obvious result that we will choose uh, Damascus. And uh, beyond that, there is also something, I would say, extraordinarily important going on, is that it's the radicalization of the conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And a few days ago, probably you have seen the newspaper, that Saudi Arabia is, has stopped the funding of the, um, the Lebanese army, which is extremely important. I'm not sure that it's going to have immediate repercussion, but it says something about the level of distress, of tension uh, we are seeing in the region. And I will conclude with the case of Turkey, because the case of Turkey could be exactly the, the, the weak spot on the whole, in the whole system. Uh, to put it uh, very simply, uh, if you in Ankara, and I don't ask you to be very sympathetic with Erdogan government. That's not the point here. Because even if the JP was in power, would that change the strategic equation much? What we are seeing is that the southern border of uh, Turkey is actually, or will be most likely in a few weeks, few months, in the whole in the hand of the PKK. And at the same time, you have what I would call uh, after, after some thought, but what I would call seriously a civil war going on in the southeast of Turkey. And of course, if you're in Ankara, uh, you have some difficulties uh, accepting this kind of situation. That's why it, uh, it's not likely that the Turkey is just going to, to look at the destruction of the Syrian insurgency, the northern Aleppo uh, governorate, and not doing anything about it. Something is going to happen, I think. And, of course, it's more radicalization, it's more foreign intervention, it's more fight, it's more destruction. And as we have seen, and that will be my last, uh, my, my conclusion, uh, in this uh, crisis since 2011, there, there was a lot of turning points, moments where it should have been, it could have been different. And every time we chose the wrong term every time, uh, which I think indicates something about the American will to go out of the Middle East because they are not bearing the cost. We as Europeans are bearing the cost. And so Syria is a, Syrian, Syrian is a good example of how American and European interests are so, so deeply different. And the second thing is that, sadly enough, uh, the sectarian nature of the war in the Middle East is, is 